back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at PCRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. And we realize that whenever Reformation happens in the history of the church, things get messy. And after this past synod, things are really starting to get messy in the Christian Reformed Church. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We're dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. We also want to say thank you to everyone who sponsored us on Patreon. We're slowly making our way to that modest goal of 20 sponsors at $5 a month. So if you appreciate what we're doing and want to help us continue to put out content, head on over to patreon.com backslash the messy reformation. We're also dreaming about ways to expand the reach and the content of the messy reformation. We've been listening to the struggles and frustrations of our audience and we feel compelled to meet some of those needs. So pay close attention over the next couple months. We've got some exciting things in the works. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of our conversation with Stephen Terpstra. Stephen, why don't you kick us off? Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and the church that you're at. So yeah, uh, Stephen Terpstra, I pastor at Borkulo Christian Reform Church out here in West Michigan. Uh, even though my family and I are originally from Canada, um, grew up over in Guelph, Ontario, um, served six years in Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, now we're out here in West Michigan. Uh, my wife, Christina, and I have been married now for, well, next week, 24 years. Uh, we have five kids. Uh, our our youngest is in um, eighth grade now, just starting, uh, well, today, actually. So that's oh. kind of exciting. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I got a freshman in high school, uh, freshman going over to the University of Michigan this year, um, got a sophomore Redeemer University over in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and then we've got a, a senior at Grand Valley State University, um, our oldest daughter, who's also getting married next year, so it's kind of an exciting time for our family, and uh, and so yeah, lots of good things happening in our family, and uh, we're excited about that, and uh, yeah, it's been 10 wonderful years here at the church. And uh, looking forward to hopefully to quite a few more. Awesome. Yeah, you guys have a lot of transitions going on. A new marriage and a freshman in high school, you said, right? And a freshman in college. Uh, Lots lots of of changes going on. on. Yeah, awesome. Now, did I pick up, is this your your second calling then? You had one, or like you, or your church? You had one church for six years, and then this is your second church? Yeah, this is my second uh, congregation. So yeah, six years in my first church, um, just over 10 years here now. And uh, time flies uh, when you're having fun yeah. in ministry. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, amen. So, uh, how what was your path into the ministry? How, what was kind of let's let's hear your calling story. So, I've been probably mine is just a little different from from some others at least. Um, I was kind of in the music world beforehand, um, really from pretty young, and started playing in church when I was well nine years old, and got really active. Started doing that uh, professionally when I was fifteen. Got hired on at a church and. So I yeah, did a bachelor of music and a master of music. I was planning to go on and do a PhD and, and do that full time. Uh, but then God kind of 
diverted us. And I really got this conviction. I saw a lot of people in the music world, uh, even in the church music world, that they wanted to make a job of it, but they didn't actually love Jesus at all, didn't even know him. Um, it was just the job. And I started to think, can I really imagine myself, first of all, just being hired to just do a job at a church for people who don't even care about my faith? Um, and second of all, teaching for 11 people to work in a church that don't care about the church. I, I, I couldn't even begin to imagine that at that stage. And I just had this conviction, you know, I've been working in the church already uh, for years. Uh, but I want to more than just entertain people or even move people or even inspire people. I want to see real change. Yeah. And I just had this growing conviction that 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 only the gospel can really transform people, can really make an ultimate and lasting difference. And I just had that. I just had I couldn't do anything else anymore. And so kind of within a fairly short time, my wife and I were just absolutely convicted, uh, changed gears, signed up for seminary and, and never looked back. So headed to Calvin Seminary, spent four years over there. I did a concurrent internship at East Paris CRC, uh, which was wonderful. And uh, which was kind of a neat thing in the long run. Uh, the pastor there actually grew up here in the parsonage in Borkula. Oh, His dad had been the pastor here. Oh, wow. Of course, we, we didn't know any of those connections back in the day. And uh, went to seminary and was at seminary with a classmate who actually, whose father happened to be the pastor here at this church. Uh, at that time, uh, didn't know that either. And uh, God just, God works these things out. Yeah. Amen. Praise God. Yeah. I love the, I just, I love the the story about this way that uh, you come to this realization, right? That it's really the gospel that changes hearts. And then, uh, you know, God brings you to that conviction and then lights this fire in you to, to be able to enter into parish ministry where you can start yeah. seeing that happen. Not that you can't see that happen outside of parish ministry, but, but when God kind of lights that fire in us, it's like, I want to devote my life to this, right? I want to devote yeah. my life, to helping people understand the, the beauty and the power of the gospel. And I love it. I've, I've seen that in you over the years too, just, or not over the years, over the last year, as we've got to know each other, this passion you have between the gospel and, uh, and, uh, and worship, not just worship as music, but like worship as liturgy and preaching. And so do you want to talk to us a little bit about how you see those things being connected? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you know, my background is in music. And so I had certainly given a lot of thought to that aspect of worship and, and kind of as worship plan as part of my background. And so as I went to seminary, I, I kind of, I want to know more about this because uh, I'd seen all kinds of different things. One of the one of the nice things in some ways, you know, I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, um, very typical church. Uh, but when I went into the music world, I had a chance to see all kinds of other traditions, um, just as getting little little jobs here and there. Everything from working for a couple of summers at a Roman Catholic church, a very large one, four services a weekend, seeing that liturgy up close. Um, worked a couple of summers in an Anglican church in Canada, seeing how that worked. Um, spent four years during university at a Lutheran church. And, and kind of, you know, living into that liturgy. Now, I worked for four years at a United Church of Canada. A very, very liberal church in many ways. Um, but also getting kind of open up to that. Um, spent a little time with the March for Jesus uh, movement up in Canada. And uh, so, God, did the Guelph Bible Chapel. People falling down the aisles as they're being slain by the Spirit. So I kind of had a chance to, to see the full spectrum. Of, of the church and, and how different people worship, how they think about God, how they think about their relationship to him, how they think about 
what we do in worship as as part of the relationship we have with God. And then, of course, at the same time, we had kind of this megachurch movement redeveloping. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during seminary, a friend of my of mine, we went over to, to Mars Hill to hear Rob Bell uh, one Sunday because we've been hearing about him out here in West Michigan uh, back when he was, you know, kind of all the rage. And, and just to experience megachurch, you know, in a strip mall <laughs> in an old storefront and just radically different. I mean, functionally speaking, no liturgy. I mean, it's just we're going to worship for a while, by which they mean we're going to sing. And then we're going to have some teaching for a while. And then we just leave. And, and so you just kind of start to see all these things and you say, what is going on? I mean, not just what are people doing, but why? And, and, and what does that have to do with what we believe God is and what our relationship to God is? And so I really started to look deeply into those connections. And, and more and more over the years, I've been convicted by it. And just, I, I fundamentally believe that, that God knows best in every part of our life. And that sounds like an obvious thing, but it's clearly not obvious these days. Just this growing conviction that even if I don't understand, even if I don't agree that God's word is true, that God's will is absolute. And not only that it's absolute in the sense that he commands it, but that what he commands is the best possible thing for us. And so I think when it comes to worship, seeing people invent all kinds of different kinds of worship, um, reimagining worship, reimagining the church. And I say, do I really know better than God? (laughs) (laughs) what he wants. Do I know better than God what is good for me? Do I know better than God what will bring blessing into not only my life, but into the world? And eventually just get it. Of course, I don't know better. None of us knows better. God knows everything. And so then you have to say, well, then I got to go back to scripture to find out what God wants and what, what God thinks will be best for me and for the world. And once you start doing that, you know, increasingly, I kind of became convicted by the regular principle. And, and that just got confirmed the last couple of years. Uh, I'm working on a doctor of ministry over at Westminster in Philadelphia. Did a wonderful uh, course on reform worship uh, this past winter uh, with John Payne from the PCA. And again, just thinking through what does the scripture say about worship? And then you start to see, well, the scripture tells us what God wants. And, and, and it's not even complicated. You know, sometimes people make this really convoluted. You know, he wants us to to read his word. Uh, What a simple thing that that worship should be scripture saturated. Uh, That that almost everything we say uh, in in the sense of when we speak for God as pastors should be scripture. Um, We don't need to make things up. We don't need to ramble on. God can speak. And when God speaks, we really believe that it's God who's speaking. And his words are way better than my words. Mm-hmm. And then as part of that covenant relationship, then we, we get to respond to God. We get to meet with God. And, and that's, a, that's a holy and an awesome thing. You know, whether we meet with thousands of people, whether we, we meet at a conference, uh, you know, and we, we get to worship with lots of different people, or whether we're in, in the smallest little church in the smallest little town. Uh, worship is this, this meeting with a holy God in his very presence through the blood of Jesus and the presence of his spirit. Um, what better could we do? It's, it's just, it's an awesome thing. 
Yeah. Amen, Stephen. Thank you so much. Um, so I understand that you actually led the worship symposiums for the uh, Conference of Confessional Churches. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I was part of that uh, the conference a couple of weeks ago now, I suppose. And uh, yeah, I was part on the, of the, the steering committee and the, the program committee for that. And then I ended up organizing the worship services for that. And I had the opportunity to speak about right. worship and sacraments, which, which was a real honor. Yeah, and that's kind of what I want to ask about. Uh, talk about that process. Was that really enriching? And, uh, you know, as people taking that in, could you see, I don't know, wheels turning in their head as far as like, oh, my goodness, this is all so, so basic, but this is so true. Uh, I, I don't know. What was your experience like doing that? It was a really good thing. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a little more intimidating in some sense to speak to uh, pastors than, than to your congregation in some sense. But, but I'm amazed in some ways, you know, there's a lot of weeks I come up to the pulpit and I say, well, what I'm going to say is really obvious. I mean, don't we all know this already? I mean, we know the gospel. Almost everybody here has heard it. Maybe not everybody, but most people have heard it before. Uh, but it's just so true and powerful. We're just going to say it again. And every time, every time we read the scriptures, something new is there. Every time we preach the gospel, something new is there. And we believe that every time we do it, that, that God's word never returns empty. And so we just have this growing confidence that it's not up to me. And so, you know, I can go and preach to pastors and say, well, I may have nothing new to say, but God is going to speak again through his word. Um, what an honor that is. And, and yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that we just need to be reminded of. I, I think we, we basically know these things, but in real life, we just kind of keep going and we think, well, maybe, maybe they are right. You know, maybe if I was more inventive, then, then, oh, then, you know, our church would grow and the gospel would flourish, the world would be saved and the kingdom would come and I can save the world by my cleverness. <laughs> and, and of course, it's silly when we say it that way. But, but you get the impression people really believe that in some sense, that it's up to us to come up with something to, to save the world. It's why I'm so opposed to the social justice movement. I mean, justice is wonderful. I love justice. God is a just God. But the idea that the gospel is what we're going to do to make the world a better place, that somehow it's up to us, and if we fail, the world is doomed. Well, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to preach that. I want to preach that Jesus can save the world. Mm -hmm. and, and that's going to be enough. And so I think it's the same thing when we, when we preach about anything else, when we preach about worship. You know, my message was not, well, we should do this, we should do this, we should be, we should do this. If we're obedient to God, he will work. And when he works, wow, just look out and wait for it. Yeah, praise God. Well, and I think you you nailed something as far as like this, the importance of reminder is that we're constantly being tempted to think that it's us. I, or that it's on us, right? And especially, uh, I would say even especially pastors, because we, we're looking out at our congregations and we're we're wanting to shepherd them and we're maybe not always seeing the fruit that we want and, and we're wanting to see the gospel spread to the community and maybe that's not going the way we want and we start going, well, maybe if we did something different, maybe if we... And, you know, even those of us, like, I've got a really strong opinion about the power and importance of God's word and, and worship. And yet, I even I find that temptation sneaking into myself at times going, well, what if we changed it? Maybe if we, maybe if we were just a little more contemporary, maybe that would help drop people, whatever, you know, and, and you start and then 
you need to be reminded again, like, no, God's the one that's doing this work. And not that, you know, contemporary music, whatever, I don't even want to get into that. But those things are important. Yes, but, but you still start putting the emphasis on you and what you're doing for the spread of the gospel rather than Christ. And so that's why we need to be reminded over and over and over again, which is, I mean, scripture is just one long reminder, isn't it? (laughs) Book after book after book, reminding us of who God is and what he has done and, and how we try to wander away from that over and over again. And God saying, stop, come back. It's so true. And, and, and it's a funny thing because in some ways, I mean, you know, we know that, but we're just geared towards works righteousness. It's just woven into the, into the fabric of our being. And it's tough because, you know, because we fall into several errors, of course. Um, I've been preaching on baptism recently. And, and I really believe baptism, the sacraments in general, are, are God making promises to us. Fundamentally, it's not about our work. And yet at the same time, baptism calls a response from us. It has to call a response from us. It has to, our, our faith looks like something. It has to look like something. When God offers the gospel, we know ultimately in eternity that he's the one who elects us. He's the one who sends his spirit to, to make that work real in our lives. It's Jesus who accomplishes that redemption from beginning to end, from eternity to eternity. And yet, we really have to repent. And we really have to believe. And we really have to stand firm and persevere. And so there's always those dual sides. You know, I mean, it's certainly true that as pastors, we give this our all. You know, the gospel calls us to wholehearted, lifelong obedience. Mm-hmm. It calls us to give our very best to it. We we are even willing to give our lives if necessary for it. And yet we, we give it everything we have, knowing that nothing we have is ever going to be sufficient. Mm-hmm. But just because he's worthy. And 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 it's because it's that's the problem I find sometimes it, it can look the same way. And one person is doing it out of their own power. Um and, and really just trying to, you know, save the world by themselves. And lots of churches, if we're honest, are looking for a pastor that's going to save them. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a real problem in the calling process. If we just get the right pastor, if we, you know, if we just get a young pastor with a family, yep. th- then every other young family in the community is going to come. If we just get a dynamic pastor, then everybody's going to come. And, of course, no pastor can save a church. I mean, I mean, there are human beings that by their, you know, charisma might be able to grow an organization but we don't have the power to grow the church of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And yet when God calls us to preach, he does call us to give it our all, Mm -hmm. to take our our education seriously, to take our study seriously, to take our pastoral work seriously. And, and so it's more of a heart issue. Yeah. You know, and and we gotta, we gotta work hard on those things um, as pastors to make sure our hearts in the right place. Yeah, well, it's that it's that temptation, or it's that not temptation. Well, it's a temptation and a balance issue. You know, you hear you hear the apostle Paul say, "I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace in me." And it's like, okay, right? Or even Philippians, like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, um, for it's God who's at work in you to will and to do according. And it's like, okay, we have to learn that balance where yes, we work hard and we give our all we lay down our life for our flock, right? Um, but yet, we, that's never enough. And, and and that's never actually what even accomplishes it. It's God's grace and power working, working through us. And yet we 
when we're laying down our life or giving our all, we tend to think that it's us that that's doing it. And we kind of like to prop ourselves up and feel pretty good about that. And I, I think, you know, that's in some ways, I think that's what's happening in the denomination too. Hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people came to Synod and they worked hard and they should work hard. In fact, it's in many ways, it's the thing that I, I enjoy the most about going to Synod. You know, people give up a lot to be there. Uh, they work really hard to prepare. The agenda this year was just massive. <laughs> And, and, and so everybody who goes to Synod is really passionate about that work. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, I think we can say at the end of the day, nothing we do or, or work is going to change the church. I know there are some people who think that there's this grand conspiracy and all kinds of people have been working behind the scenes for decades and, and, and conspiring to arrange things by their power. It's just not, I mean, it's just not true. No. I mean, <laughs> I don't know anybody who's that organized. Um, or that successful. Or that successful. I mean, it, I mean, it just isn't true. Yeah. You know, nobody has that kind of power to arrange votes and committees. I, I mean, it just isn't so. No. Um, but I think, you know, we all are diligent in our work. And then we trust that, that God will do what God's going to do. And, and I really have this sense that God is doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know exactly where it's going to end up. But he's doing something, yeah, uh, and I'm excited about it. Amen. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking uh, about a lot of those comments lately, right? So, like James Bratt wrote an article calling calling it a coup, <laughs> and uh, you know, associating that this last synod with like the insurrection on January. I mean, it was just asinine thing, right? And uh, but I think what's going on. I'd love your thoughts on that, but. So what in the world would make him think that this was a coup or all of this? And I think what the problem is, because there's other people buying into that same kind of conspiracy theory mindset that the conservatives organized this thing. Um, And I think it's just because of this, this bubble I've been talking about that, or this kind of echo chamber that, that not, I mean, we all can get in our own echo chambers, but in the CRC, there's like this really particular echo chamber especially amongst progressives that they thought they thought they were the majority in, in our denomination. I think they thought they were the vast majority or at least a strong majority. And because that's just the echo chamber that they were in. And then they, they get to synod and then the, the votes start happening and people were calling. I mean, eventually the progressives were the ones saying, stop, stop reading the vote counts. We don't want to hear that anymore. Um, because I think those those counts were pointing out that maybe they weren't living in reality, that they didn't see the reality of of the CRC. Because I've been I've been trying to tell uh, some of the progressives this a little bit when they're saying the votes at Synod were not representative of our denomination. And I said, man, you can go back and listen to podcasts that we recorded two years ago. And I said, I think a strong 75 percent of the office bearers in the CRC are conservative. And so, and then all of a sudden the votes come up and it goes, there you go. Uh, yeah. Boom. You know, and I'm not tr- trying to prop myself up. I'm just saying, like, I think, I think those of us kind of, kind of dispersed throughout the CRC probably have a clearer picture of the reality of our denomination than those who are kind of stuck in that, uh, especially the Grand Rapids bubble, I think has yeah. got its own bubble, but, but there's a progressive bubble as well. There, there is, and and it's it, it is a funny thing when you think about it, that 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 you know he's really saying that what what happened in Senate is radical, 
that we made this massive shift by, by saying what the church of all times and all places has always said, yeah. what our denomination's position has always said. Right. And somehow that's radical. I mean, I mean, just even to make that statement is kind of a bizarre thing. You can't have a coup when you're not just in the majority, but the vast majority. I mean, like 99.99% of all Christians who have ever lived yeah. <laughs> believed that and still believe yeah. it. And they think that, that we're the ones who are overturning things. I mean, it's just not so. Just like I, I find it hilarious that they, they think somehow that, that, you know, a couple of, a handful of conservatives rigged the elections for delegates in every single classes that they somehow rigged the vote for the office bearers of synod. And the reality is, not, I mean, none of us has any control over any of those votes. None of them. No. Not a single one. Every classes does whatever it wants. And every office bearer in that classes did what they wanted to do. They nominated who they wanted to. This is who that classes wanted to send. I don't know what their process was. Every class is different. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is who they sent. And those delegates voted on things. They voted on office bearers. Nobody made them vote anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so everything that happened was by, I mean, a democratic process, functionally speaking, of these under shepherds of our church. Yeah. Uh, it is representative. Uh, you may not like it, but it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that it just it shocked them. I think you're right. They thought they were in, in the vast majority and, and more and more. And, and almost again, as, as if, as if those of us who, who they would call conservative and traditional, I don't like those terms anyway. I, I think orthodox is a good word. Um, but those of us who, you know, hold to these things that the church has always held, that, that there's something weird about us, that we're not even in the, this, the mainstream of what the Christian church has always been. And always done. I think you know Clayton Leibold wrote about that recently. That there's this weird new thing in the in the Christian Reform Church that's taking over, and that's overturning this 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 long history we have. And it's just not it's just not so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Stephen, actually, uh, speaking of synod, uh, I, I just wanted to highlight a couple things. First and foremost. Correct me if I'm wrong. Were you the first delegate to actually speak about a matter on the floor of Senate this year? <laughs> I was. That was not my plan at you, all. But, but you did do that. But somehow it was the first item on the agenda. Nobody else was going to speak. And I, I felt really strongly about, <laughs> uh, you know, theological education and especially preaching. So, right. Now, that, that was actually the committee that Jason and I were on. So I just wanted to I just wanted to hear your thoughts about, you know, being the first one to speak and to kind of open things up and and really shake things and uh, and call for uh, even even reconsideration of these things. Um, what was that experience like for you? I mean, fortunately, I've been to Senate before. And, and so it wasn't my first time ever speaking. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have said anything. I'm sure I would have chickened out. <laughs> uh, but I, I had been giving this quite a bit of thought. Um, you know, I, I'm a synodical deputy, and so I, I hear quite a few exams of students. Um, I'm also obviously a full-time pastor, and so I see what's going on out there. Um, I think we live in a hard time to be a pastor. Uh, we live in a time where the church is being challenged, uh, where a lot of cultural influences are infiltrating the church, and where I think the need for the gospel is ever, ever bigger. And for, and for powerful gospel preaching. Uh, 
Uh, and so I, I really think that that theological education is maybe more important than it's ever been. Uh, the more lies our congregation have to deal with, um, the more they need somebody at least who can think through those things theologically, biblically, and speak into it. And so, yeah, as I as I hear exams, as I hear students struggle to articulate things in in, in theological ways, they can't make careful distinctions. Uh, they don't have the language. Uh, the sermons are not only short, but they're they're fluffy. Uh, I, sermons even that don't even mention Jesus. I mean, I, you know, I always tell students, you know, I mean, it's your classical exam. You don't have to ace it. You don't have to be the best preacher in the world. You know, don't worry about that. But you got to get the basics right. I mean, you just have to. I mean, you have to execute the text. You have to preach the gospel. You have to talk about Jesus. I mean, if you don't do those things, then you're just not really preaching. And so when students come in and, and their sermons just don't do the basics, I get concerned. Now, I'm not, I don't know whose fault that is, and I'm not necessarily saying that it's anybody's fault, but I am saying that as a denomination, we have to, we have to pause and say, are we preparing people for real ministry in this culture at this time in this place with the, with the tools they need? And so that's why when I heard that, the, that you know, the seminary and the denomination are, are not raising requirements, but lowering them again. I think, I think the program has changed three times since I graduated. And every time there's, you know, there's less hours, uh, there's fewer requirements. And I'm just not seeing the fruit from it yet. Um, I want to genuinely, you know, I have a passion for that. You know, when I, when I heard that the seminary wasn't going to replace um, John Rotman, and, and we're not even going to have a full-time you know, professor of preaching. I'm like, well, if, if we're not preparing first and foremost preachers of the gospel, like, what are we doing? Yeah. How is it conceivable that somebody could graduate from seminary with a single course in preaching when that's the very heart of our calling? And, and yeah. so I just, want, I just felt I had to raise it. I'm like, somebody has to say something. I mean. Yeah, do you think it's a result of just, I, I, I've noticed a general, I think, uh, misunderstanding of the calling of a pastor. It's been like shifting over the years where Absolutely. we call ourselves uh, ministers of the word. People call us ministers of the word. And yet more people are looking to us as, um, well, uh, therapists, maybe. Um, to kind of just help them through the tough time or whatever. And, and I don't, I think many people are wanting their pastor like, well, just give us something to think about on Sunday morning. And then, but just really help me when life gets tough. And, uh, but, but I don't need, I don't want a teacher. I don't want to, you know, I, I just need. And so we keep lowering the requirements of preaching because we don't really think it's that, that big of a deal or even that big of a part of, of the role of a pastor. Absolutely. And, and, and my suspicion is, I haven't thought too deeply about it yet, but I suspect that what people want from their pastor is probably related in some sense to some confusion they have about what the gospel is. Mm. I think false gospels feed into what, what, what should my pastor do? You know, if, if I think that, that our job is to transform my community for Jesus, then my pastor should be a social organizer. Yeah. You know, if, if I think that that are you know that that my hope is to be part of a successful church that my pastor should be a great inspiring leader you know a, a vision caster 
I'm mm-hmm. still not entirely sure what that word means. You know, I mean, I don't have a vision. God has a vision. I'm happy to work for his vision. Yeah. Uh, but I don't have a vision for your church. It's not my church. It doesn't, doesn't belong to me. I have no right to change its vision. You know, I'm just a servant, just like everybody else in the church. We're serving the one who has the real vision for the church, Jesus Christ. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with Stephen Terpstra. But until then, don't forget this is Christ Church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.